Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello, Hello. and welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblow. And hey, we are back. We are back. We are back. We're Mm. back. I mean, Mm. Mm. we're back to, I guess we are back. Yeah, it's been a while for us, but maybe We're back with another episode. We're here. We're here. We're here. We're queer. We're here. We're queer. We're ready to go. Which, speaking about... We're here and we're queer. Oh my god. Okay. Already. Tell me. Yeah. This is something that I've been wanting to bring up for like multiple episodes now and I keep forgetting to. Have you ever heard of Queering the Map? Yes. I think you maybe told me about it a little bit ago, but it didn't stick so, so much in my brain. So tell me again. Queering the Map is a website that, um, how do I explain? So it's like, um, it's just like a general map and then people can like drop pins and write a little comment about like queer right. things they did or like what they experienced whatever so you can like look at all of these different countries and see all of the like queer people that are there and things that they've said whatever and like a lot of them are like people from other countries being like sending love from this country or whatever like like hello or just like something stupid but like there are a lot of really really sweet ones like in pakistan there's a bunch and i saw a tiktok on it and i don't remember who posted it but this is like kind of how i found the website but like one says like two kids a rooftop and fireworks in the background took the first step of falling in love another one says two queers under a starry sky here Listening to Brittany Broski and Sarah Showers mm-hmm. violating community guidelines podcast, Sarah brings up this website as well and talks about how there's like one person, there's like one pin in like Kentucky or something, and it basically is saying like I'm here, so that like if anybody else from Kentucky like looks, they realize like they're not alone, and it's like oh. there are people. It's just like a really really sweet website. There are a lot of really sweet pins about people's like. Like, here I lived for her, learned that nothing would ever be as beautiful as her smile, fell a thousand times over for her eyes. Like, it's just, like, such sweet notes, and it just, like, really makes you, I don't know, just, like, appreciate, you know, being queer and being in a place that is more accepting towards queerness and queer people and stuff. So, I don't know. I I would say everybody go take a look at Queering the Map, and if you are queer, go ahead and add a pin on here, like, wherever you're listening it's just like such a sweet website and I don't know I really really love it it's just oh, amazing I do remember you telling me about this and I think the one I did get a little teary-eyed we're just a bunch of saps here really like we, we love all of the cute sappy stories I'm gonna actually go look at the other pins that are on there now because I remember you sending me that one but I don't remember yeah it's so sweet others. I really love it it's cute I love that in a less cute Uh same um like way less cute because this has kind of been like plaguing my mind since we picked the topics for this episode Mm -hmm. and we've had this conversation quite a few times where we will be texting about our moment in history or our subject and realize we don't know anything about history and it's really (laughs) it's it's really plaguing you're gonna expose Um, us right now i am so like do you think how many Mm-hmm. How many presidents, like, actually, do you think you could name? Like, is it less than 10? Yeah, probably. I, yeah, mm, I agree. I don't know. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I agree. Should and I? I just feel like, no, see, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so, because there's been, oh, how many? 40, 46? We're on 46 We're in the now. 40s. We're in the 40s. Okay. and But, like, Eddie and his family will just, like, straight up, like, dinner table rattle off the presidents. And I'm like, oh, where did you learn this? I feel like they're... Who taught you? I don't... Not the New Jersey education system. Not at all. Yeah, the public school system. It's... I feel like... You know how there are, like, kids that go on to Ellen, the Ellen show, and they're like, I know every dinosaur or whatever. I feel like it's something, like, one of those kids learns. Like, I know every president, but it's... I don't feel like the average person, especially the average U.S. citizen, knows more than, like, the really popular ones. Right, right. So, can you, can you, like, try to name some... George Washington sure, was number one. one. John Adams, he was like number was two he or the three. One? 
Yeah, something like that. No, Thomas Jefferson was maybe the second one. And Thomas Jefferson was president? No. I think yes. I'm going to look this up. I, this... He was the third U.S. president. Okay, so it was John Adams and then Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Okay. And then I know number 16 is Abraham Lincoln. Okay, I didn't know his number, but Yeah, Rahab, I know he's, Abraham I'm pretty Lincoln. sure I could be completely wrong. Was Ulysses S. Grant a president? Yeah, he, he was, was number definitely 18. like a general and then also a president. Okay, so yeah. we've got four, five. Okay, there's, well, we have all of the Bushes, right? <laughs> sure, the two. Two, two. the two Bushes. <laughs> okay. um, then we I have, hate it. Can we, I hate that that's what we shoot. could call them now. Okay. The two Bushes. <laughs> the Bushels. Um, <laughs> there was Obama. There was number 45, he who shall not be named. There <laughs> was current Joe Biden. There was um, Clinton. Correct. Um, there was FDR. There mm-hmm. was Grover Cleveland. Mm-hmm. There was... Mm, Ronald Reagan. Ronald... Ugh. Boo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ronald Reagan. Um uh richard nixon oh yeah yeah yeah. right peace sign watergate yeah watergate rich plus lots of other terrible things (laughs) yeah yeah deep throat or whatever they called them yeah yeah i think that might be it i all i don't really care to keep there was also um one from new jersey one single one which honestly might be the person that i'm talking about today but he didn't live in new jersey when he was elected president so like i don't know also the one from parks and rec that they talk about that he died like 16 months in office or whatever had william henry harrison okay that's okay i feel like that's a good amount of u.s presidents that we know collectively between the two of us oh taft he was like got stuck in his bathtub what he was he was he got stuck in his bathtub he was just like a little larger and then got stuck in his bathtub no, no, he didn't oh. die. Well, he died, yes, eventually. But <laughs> not from... still alive to this day. <laughs> not from being stuck in his bathtub, mm. I don't think. I think somebody just had to, like, get him out. Get him out. <laughs> A few people, probably. <laughs> probably more okay. than one, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, okay, we did pretty good between the two of us. Okay, why were you why 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 were you exposing me like that? Because you just wanted to tell people that we didn't know as much as we should, well, and we have a history podcast. No, I think it was more I wanted to feel validated. I feel like I don't know a lot about U.S. history. Like I I was I saw something the other day that was talking about the citizenship test mm-hmm. that you have to take, and there's a lot of information on there that like people who were born in the united states would not know and like clearly we do not know either like i don't i could not tell you on a map where wisconsin Mm -mm. is like i i really could not and like and capitals like no like i I don't know those things and so i guess that's not really history the presidents are probably history but like i don't know i i don't know a lot about the u.s and i wanted to like be validated that i'm Mm -hmm. not probably alone in that what if we just didn't learn collectively? I think we would be fine. Right? Just like did not learn anything or mm-hmm. specific things. Just no, nothing. Just at in all. general. Like why don't we all just like vibe <laughs> and exist? It's true. Let's just all chill out collectively mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. One human race just vibe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we solved it. We I mean, solved it. I don't know if we did. Let's, for now, stick with learning things. Let's do it. All right. Oh, I'm going. I'm going. You're going first, right? I'm going first, right. Um, I wanted a little bit more fanfare, maybe, for that. Maybe that's what I was looking for. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen, (laughs) gentlemen. Tonight, night, night, night. Thank you. So the reason I talked about presidents was because this week we're talking about some famous maybe not famous first ladies and i'm going to be talking about the first lesbian and also somehow unmarried first lady rose cleveland all right so the sources i used for today were an all that's interesting article by natasha ishak and joanna nix also the wikipedia page for rose cleveland an article entitled A Gay First Lady. Yes, we've already had one. And here are her love letters by Jillian Brockwell for Washington Post. And then, please leave me alone for this one. 365 Days of Lesbians Tumblr page. Girl. 
You know what? And the author, the author just went by Elsie. So thank you, Elsie, for this. Lots of information. I Only the it. highest credible sources here on this podcast will do. Truly. Now, I will be fair too. The Tumblr page was like verified by these other sources as well. Okay. So it it's just to form a well-rounded picture sure. for you all. Please. So Rose Elizabeth Cleveland was born on June 13th, 1846. And now I've gotten the habit of looking up every subject's astrological Mm -hmm. signs. I don't know what it means. She was a Gemini. Mm -hmm. She was born in Fayetteville, New York, which is like right outside of Syracuse. And she was the youngest of the Cleveland family's nine children. So lots of kids. That's a lot of children. Yeah. Also, a lot of places in the United States called Fayetteville. A lot of them. Uh, it's this was like New a, York. Like a Springfield situation? Yes. Springfield actually I think is the most common. The common place. named. Yeah. Fayetteville though is named after Marquis de Lafayette. Hmm. And so maybe I think that's probably why there's a lot. Sure. Them. Sure. Yeah. That was like a tangent in my searches today. Growing up, Libby, as she was nicknamed, assumed just like a ton of responsibility by the age of seven when her father died. So Mm. kind of another common theme that we've seen, large families, but like younger women often, not women, Mm -hmm. she was a girl at the time, but like the younger girls kind of taking on a lot of responsibility. Many of her older siblings, including her brother Grover, left home to find jobs to support the family after the death of their father. Rose stayed home to care for her mother and then eventually followed in both her father and her brother's footsteps by becoming a teacher. And she was educated through the Houghton Seminary. It's spelled like Julianne Huff, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how to pronounce her name. Is that how you pronounce it? Huff? Huff? Hugh? Okay, so Huff... Uh, Hugh, Houghton, Houghton, Houghton. Mm, I like Houghton. the third. <laughs> no, no. Okay, there's a GH in there. You can figure out where. Okay, she goes to a school. Yeah, so she was she was eventually she was educated through the seminary and then eventually taught like religious education through Sunday school and gave lectures on altruistic faith as a teacher herself at Muncie Seminary. She cared for her mother until her death in 1882 when she was left to tend to the family estate in upstate New York, which was known as The Weeds, hmm. all by herself. So yeah, she's up there. She's in The Weeds. I would love to see this property and understand why it was called The Weeds, the weeds. but just, just The Weeds. I love it. It's a fun name. Sucks, though, that she has to kind of take over and 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 be head of the household at a young age. Yeah, so she's kind of like all by herself. She has this sort of like estate, large property. She's in like, again, like right outside Syracuse. So it's like Mm -hmm. cold and I don't know how many people are there. Similarly, her brother Grover was all by himself when running for president in 1884. So he was 47 years old and he faced criticism for like being this bachelor and gossip sort of swirled about him fathering a child out of wedlock, which Ooh. was true. It was, that's a true fact. He did father a child out of wedlock. So like, it's still gossip, but it is a true fact. So as like the campaign is happening, people are like, we can't have this kind of like bachelor type guy, Grover Cleveland, right. as we all know him as the big bachelor as the president. Because it's that's so un-American. Like he's not a fit. It doesn't seem like he's a family man. Like he just has this like a, right. other child like out of wedlock. It just, yeah, it doesn't add up to being president. Right. You would think. I would. But he was elected president and took office in 1885. Mm. And at the time, though, it wasn't just kind of like this gossip around him being a bachelor. It was, for like a very bizarre reason, necessary for unmarried or widowers. Mm-hmm. Widowers are the title for men. It, for unmarried men, they have to have had a woman serve as the woman of the house or the first lady, even if they didn't have like a wife. So the title fell to a female relative to assume this role as the first lady. So that's how we get an unmarried first lady Mm. in Rose. So ever this like generous spirit, she was 39 and single herself, which I think helped because I don't think it would have been, I don't think a, a, a female relative would have been able to serve in the role if they were married themselves. Okay. So was she, because of this, was she like first pick or was it because she was like next of kin? Like why was it her specifically? Do you know? So 
I don't know, but I think it probably had to do with the fact that she was unmarried because okay. she was the youngest of their siblings. So gotcha. she's 39 at this point, basically like a spinster mm-hmm. if she's unmarried. Mm-hmm. So I, I would assume that's a lot of the reason. Okay. Because as we talked about, people kind of like didn't really like her that much. Right. So I don't mm. think she had was like charismatic and campaigning. She was just kind of like got a phone call one day and was like, you're single, get down here. Right. So, <laughs> so she's 39, single, mm-hmm. like takes over as the first lady for 14 months for her brother. So okay. she's... So they're not married, to clarify. Right, they're right, they're right, not right. married. It's just it's just her brother. So she was one single and also she was well educated and kind of well respected because she was a teacher, she had gone to school and she was kind of an author at the time too. So she definitely was like intelligent and and was able to keep up with everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. But as she kind of fulfilled the role, she was criticized for being like kind of frumpy and like not as fashionable for the standards of I guess like the first lady at the time there were full articles written about like the styles of her lace dresses and her disinterest in socializing with the other ladies of this like like hot riveting 1880s political scene like she's in Washington and they're like can't you just go to a party Rose like (laughs) she was just like I don't want to do this and every time she did do it they'd be like ew look at that dress like she looks like shit I don't think I've related to someone so much as I'm relating currently to to Rose yeah she's just kind of like her own little frumpy self like she probably wore some like moomoos or something I don't know but she was cozy I love so, our frumpy queen. Yeah, yeah. She just like wasn't looking to be fashionable because this wasn't her life. Like right. she wasn't, she didn't seek this out. Right. She just kind of like preferred her life before this like scrutiny of being yes. the sister first lady. Like yeah. she wasn't even married. She wasn't even, again, she didn't choose to assume this role. She didn't know that her husband campaigning, her husband, oh no. Oh, no. She didn't know that. She didn't know that her brother campaigning would mean like she would have to now face all of this. So she just wasn't really into it. Gotcha. She did receive some publicity for her writing um, for some of her books. But at the same time, she was then barred from attending like certain parties and other events because of her prominent White House role. So Mm -hmm. at that time, I guess it was sacred that like people weren't able to like seduce I say seduce in like a socializing way, like kind of entice people or see people in the White House outside of public gatherings because it could be seen as like coercive or like getting information or kind of like pushing people in the White House to do something one way or the other. So she had this publicity because now she had name recognition, but like wasn't really able to attend non-public events that she would have in the past. Right. So it was kind of just like, It wasn't an ideal role for Rose. But in 1886, Grover, her brother, married Frances Folsom, relieving Rose of her title as first lady and allowing her... Yeah. So she was allowed to return back to the weeds and like kind of finish out her teaching and writing career. Eventually, she became a principal of the Collegiate Institute of Lafayette in Indiana. So we have Mm. Fayetteville, New York, Mm -hmm. but now Lafayette in Indiana, and she became the editor of the magazine Literary Life. So after she was freed of her spotlight, Rose met Evangeline Simpson in 1889, while the two were likely vacationing and socializing in Florida. Rose was 43 and Evangeline was 33. Rose was never married, so not at this time and not before that. And Evangeline at this time at 33 was a widow who had inherited a large sum from her late husband. So she's just kind of like, she's young because her husband, I think her first husband was like 50 years older than her. Yeah. Yeah. But now she's 33. She's she's a widow. She's living like a hot girl single Mm -hmm. summer yeah yeah okay (laughs) so they met in florida and then returned to their separate home states with evangeline living in massachusetts Mm -hmm. they started sharing some love letters and Mm -hmm. you know how much we love love letters here so there's not like a ton of information about rose and evangeline meeting but Mm -hmm. once they kind of separated we have lots of evidence of this 
kind of relationship that they had. Right. The love letters begin, and in some of the famous, like, archived ones, Rose Mm -hmm. writes, quote, you are mine, and I am yours, and we are one, and our lives are one henceforth. Please, God, who can alone separate us. I am bold to say this, to pray, and to live it. Am I too bold, Eve? Tell me, shall I go to bed, Eve, with your letters under my pillow? Unquote. So they're like very... Very much in love. Very much, yeah. Very much like for each other. It also, this reminds me of something. I feel like maybe it's like part of the notebook or something. But this like is straight up like... I think what people think of when they think of like romantic love letters, like it's the drama, like oh my it's God, just yeah. all there. Right. This is like what they picture. This is like romantic, a romantic movie. Yes. Plot. Exactly. So only Rose's letters survive all this time once they were kind of uncovered. And we talk, we, I talk about that a little bit more later, like why that happens. But Because of this, we know little of how Evangeline responded, but on a few occasions, Rose does quote Evangeline's letters in her own kind of responses. So in one of the kind of quoted letters, Rose quotes, Oh darling, come to me this night, my clevy, my viking, my everything. Come, bless God thee. And Rose flirtatiously replied to this kind of quotation, your Viking kisses you. So they have like, they're like role playing. (laughs) 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 Yes, but they're like very cute. They're like going back and forth, which I imagine is like pretty difficult through letters. Like you're waiting and sending, but like they're, they're very sweet. They're very expressive. They're clearly very much in love. I love that. So those were some of the excerpts from their earlier Mm. letters. And at this time, there wasn't an acknowledgement really of same-sex relationships, especially for women. And Mm -hmm. so the term lesbian did exist, but it never really would have been used in this context. And women themselves wouldn't have identified as a lesbian. Instead, it kind of like drew people's minds like Greek mythology and like Sappho rather than like mm-hmm. a sexuality that one could call their own and label themselves as. Um, mm-hmm. So the two never really defined their relationship as being lesbians and they never like defined themselves that way, but they certainly had this deep emotional and sexual relationship that spanned decades. Evangeline eventually remarried a man by the name of Henry Whipple. Ooh. making her Evangeline Simpson Whipple. So she's a, she's Evangeline Whipple. Wow, I, that actually has a ring to it. Yeah. It has a gorgeous ring to it. Evangeline Whipple? Oh right. my god. Yeah, it's really I great. might change my name to that. You have to. Legally. I think you have to. I will, to I think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this marriage deeply affected the relationship between Evangeline oh. Whipple and Rose. Rose wrote to Evangeline at this time, quote, I do not think you need me now, but I plead that you will consider what I said this morning. I will give up all to you if you will try once more to be satisfied with me. Could you not take six months for that experiment? We could go away from everyone, unquote. So mm. Rose is like very upset by this and doesn't, like their their relationship just kind of like took a little bit of a turn. Um, mm-hmm. They continued writing to one another on occasion, but kind of without that same passion and intimacy that we saw in the earlier letters. There was no more like calling Evangeline Eve on Rose's part and Rose began to sign her letters more formally just as R.E.C. Also side note, Henry Whipple kind of seems like a cool dude. He was an Episcopal bishop in Minnesota and like a really big advocate for Native Americans. I I just like never heard of this person before, but like that's what most of his life was sort of dedicated to. So anyway. Okay. Cool. Props. Yeah, props, yeah. Henry. Um, he died. He died in 1901. Oh. So that's the end of his mm-hmm. storyline here. But okay. cool guy. Thanks. Cool dude. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for your service. <laughs> so he died in 1901. And then Rose and Evangeline were able to sort of make amends because of this mm. like little passive aggressive stuff that was going on. But they were able to yeah. make amends and then rekindled their relationship with Rose writing. Quote, I need you and life is not long enough to wait, unquote. Mm. 
So after that, the two left the United States together for good, and they lived the rest of their lives in the Tuscan village of Bagni de Luca, where Rose died from influenza at the age of 71 and Evangeline a few years later. The two are buried next to one another in Italy. Oh my god. Yeah, so they kind of just eventually did run away together. They tested out Mm -hmm. that experiment and lived for a few decades with one another in Italy. Oh, that sounds so ideal. Yeah, so they had like this really cute love, like an exchange of love letters, and then like lived Mm -hmm. out the rest of their lives in like Tuscany together. Like truly great. Sounds wonderful. Absolutely. So we know all of this because Mm -hmm. one of Henry Whipple's descendants donated some of his records to the Minnesota Historical Society in 1969, presumably Mm -hmm. not realizing that some of all of his stuff contained these letters. They were attempted to be sealed and kept out of the public once it was discovered, which may be why we only have Rose's letters rather than Evangeline's responses, because maybe it was meant to look like an unrequited love affair, or it was maybe a point of embarrassment for the Whipple family to have Evangeline's responses. Especially being married to a man of faith and like you know, of such a high title. Like, I'm sure they were kind of like, that's not part of his story. Like, don't, don't bring up, don't bring her into that. Like, she wasn't technically our family. Right. So we, regardless of that, we obviously do know though, that it was like two-sided. Like they were very much in love and and they lived together afterwards. But we, that's probably one of the reasons we don't have Evangeline's response letters and just roses. But like, this is how we found out that there was the first lesbian first lady and these really sweet love letters. So they could not have been hidden for long. They were kind of like made public. There's a, a whole book that details their relationship more in depth. And they kind of helped to tell us the story of Rose Cleveland and Evangeline Whipple. Oh, so cute. Yeah. I'm really happy that they kind of, oh, you know, there was a bump in the road, but then they got to live out the the remainder of their life. Like, I'm sure in like a beautiful village or a beautiful town together and just kind of like have this idealized romantic relationship together. And yeah, it's... Uh, God, it's I'm envious of yeah. <laughs> of that. And honestly, I I might go ahead and copy them and do that myself. Just like you're just going to take off one day and we'll never yeah. know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why not? You know, out of all the people in my life, I could see you doing that the most. So, yeah. maybe this is your inspiration. You've got to pull, pull an name. Evangeline Whipple. Yeah, change I'm your name. I'm going to become Evangeline Whipple, run away to Italy. Perfect. And live out my days there. Maybe that with a great. romantic lover that I've been in communication with and maybe not. And that nobody knows. That we'll, that we'll find out a hundred years later. <laughs> and Perfect. I can't wait for the public to know. Yeah. So they certainly had like a, a kind of up and down, back and forth. And like most of yeah. the time they were writing, they lived in different states. They didn't really see one another. I think right, in LDR. probably in where? An LDR, long distance relationship. Oh, I was like, <laughs> where is that? <laughs> what where are you L- talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they were in, they were in LDR, the famed mm-hmm. city. In, uh, right. <laughs> and and so I think probably part of it was that for Evangeline, being a young woman, I think I don't know much about her background, but it may have been more of an obligation to get married again for financial Mm -hmm. reasons or otherwise. And so obviously that did put a strain on their relationship because I would imagine it would be really hard to see your partner, the person that you love, like get married to someone else. But yeah, eventually things, they were able to have a lot of time together, not in LDR. (laughs) (laughs) I love that for them. Yeah, so that was, it was really interesting story when we were first part of the other reason we don't know about history, and I'll expose myself this time. I did not know that, like, Rose Cleveland, if I heard the name, I'd be like, oh, that was Grover's wife, Um, obviously, uh, is what I would have thought. I didn't know that there was this whole, like, sister first lady thing, so she wasn't I think as known as a first lady, but definitely mm-hmm. had a lot of a very interesting story about her being like the first sister of a 
yeah. of a president and also our first lesbian first lady. She's so cool. Yeah, we love her. <laughs> and she's frumpy and she owns it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> our frumpy queen. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. So let's get into my story for the week. And there was weirdly so much of Rose's story that applies to my subject this week. And so as you were telling your story, I was like, cool, we are telling almost the same story. (laughs) So there are going to be a lot of similarities in our stories this week. We kind of like coordinated a general theme but Mm -hmm. I was not anticipating like this level of mirroring okay so maybe we need to talk more I think that's our lesson okay okay but I'm excited anyway okay and maybe there's a lesson in there maybe there's a lesson that they're so similar I don't know let's hear it okay let's let's find out together okay so this week I'm going to be talking about Eleanor Roosevelt Mm, I am so excited for this one because I just I I only have heard the jokes the jokes like the jokes about Eleanor Roosevelt being a lesbian or being queer and so I'm I'm excited to hear what you've researched for me well I also just want to kind of preface this topic by saying like most of our listeners who are from the U.S. will know of Eleanor Roosevelt but we all kind of know about Eleanor Roosevelt through the frame or like through the lens of FDR and his like presidency and all of the things that he did but we don't really know much about her otherwise like she is the embodiment of the phrase like behind every great man there's a great woman Mm -hmm. like she is the great woman but there's just like so much about her and about what she's done politically and like there's only so much you can squeeze into like a 30 or so minute introduction uh to eleanor roosevelt so i really want to focus on eleanor roosevelt in the frame of like her queerness which is debated greatly which which you'll hear about but yeah if you if you want to learn more about everything that like fdr accomplished with the help of eleanor i suggest you like go do some research because there is like tons and tons and tons of just like things that happened during that there's a lot of things there's 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 quite so much like so many things have happened in history and that section is just full of of things we just can't Um, get into it all but he visited annie in the movie annie yes so we can say that okay that's the only thing we'll say about fdr (laughs) so he visited annie um and i guess okay with that all in mind including the little bit about annie let's get into eleanor roosevelt and just like eleanor roosevelt herself sounds good The sources I used this week are an article from New Now Next titled The Queer Truth Behind Eleanor Roosevelt's Feminism by Sarah Prager, or Prager, I feel like we had this um, conundrum on a previous episode. I'm sorry, Sarah, that neither (laughs) of us have (laughs) figured out how to correctly say your last name, Um, but we like your work so much, so thank you. I also used an article from Live About entitled Eleanor Roosevelt, Was She a Lesbian or Bisexual? by Kathy Belg. Will Eleanor Roosevelt's Lesbian Affair Ever Come Out of the Closet? by Tally Krupkin for Haaretz. Eleanor's profile on queer portraits in history and Eleanor's Wikipedia page. Anna Eleanor Roosevelt is born on October 11th, 1884 in Manhattan to socialites Anna Rebecca Hall and Elliot Roosevelt. From a young age, she prefers going by her middle name, Eleanor. She's born into this illustrious and prominent Roosevelt family, which is a part of New York's high society, and is the niece of the 26th president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt. Okay. See, I was confused for a moment. I don't know why I wasn't... Okay, go ahead. You can continue. Okay. So... As a child, Eleanor is always so serious in her demeanor that her mother rudely nicknames her Granny and emotionally rejects Eleanor due to feeling ashamed of her daughter's plainness. And overall, Eleanor's childhood is privileged but wildly unhappy and filled with misfortune. When she's two, she's aboard the SS Britannic, which collides with another ship, and Eleanor and her family have to escape on a lifeboat. Her father cheats on her mother with one of the family's domestic workers, and this domestic worker produces Eleanor's half-brother. And a lot of this unhappiness is also due to the fact that Eleanor survives her mother, father, and brother's deaths, all which occur in like a very quick succession. Wow. And because of this, she is thrust into sort of a maternal role to her surviving brothers at a young age, kind of like Rose 
was thrust into this maternal role as well. And from these deaths, Eleanor develops a lifelong depression. Mm. At the age of 15, Eleanor also attends like a boarding school, um, a finishing school called Allenswood Boarding Academy in London, whose mistress is a feminist by the name of Mary Suvestra, who takes a special interest in Eleanor. Eleanor is deeply influenced by Marie's feminist ideology, and here's where Eleanor's own feminism really begins to grow. When she returns to New York, she joins and becomes active in the New York Junior League, which is a private, nonprofit, educational women's volunteer organization aimed at improving communities and the social, cultural, and political fabric of civil society, which feels like a lot to accomplish for one organization, but they were trying. They were really trying. I was going to say there's like a lot of adjectives in there. Yeah, they're doing so much. Yeah. And through her involvement with the Junior League, in the summer of 1902, at the age of 18, she runs into none other than her fifth cousin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, two years her senior. And the two strike up a secret correspondence and a romance and are engaged on November 22nd, 1903, only a year later. Okay, now can I interrupt and ask you a question? Mm Mm-hmm. How far removed would you have to be from a family member to date them? Me, personally? Yeah, you, personally. I would not date somebody in my family. Yeah, like, I can't, like, you have the same last name. Like, Right, and I guess the Roosevelt family is, like, big and powerful, so, like, there are a lot of them, but it is still, there's the same blood. I also think, yeah, I think that's probably, like, of the time, like, keep, like, about royals, you know, European royals, but also mm-hmm. as close to royalty as you can get in America to like kind of keep mm-hmm. it in the family a little bit, um, which makes well, you weaker, not stronger for the, right. for the record. <laughs> well, similarly to you and I, Franklin's mother, Sarah, opposes this union wholeheartedly. <laughs> but despite this, the couple is married in March of 1905, so two years after their engagement. And Eleanor is given away by her uncle, President Theodore Roosevelt. When asked for his thoughts on the Roosevelt-Roosevelt Union, the president said, it's a good thing to keep the name in the family, which absolutely gives me full body chills in the worst way possible. Yeah, like, um, I do not like that. Me neither. From the beginning of the marriage, Franklin's mother, Sarah, is completely overbearing. She lives in a townhouse connected to the newlyweds, and Sarah runs both households, completely clashing with Eleanor. Eleanor also hates having sex with Franklin, noting that it's an ordeal more than anything else. Nevertheless, the couple has six children together, and despite having six children together, Eleanor considers herself ill-suited to motherhood. Okay. In 1918, 13 years into their marriage, Eleanor discovers that Franklin is having an affair with Eleanor's social secretary. Franklin has been considering leaving Eleanor, but is persuaded by his political advisor and his mother not to. And from here on out, their relationship is nothing more than a political partnership. Yes, sir. What are you doing? Okay. Right. I couldn't tell you. He's wild. He's like his own issue. Disenchanted with Franklin and what he has to offer, Eleanor becomes active in her own public life, actively choosing to focus more on her social work and public service rather than on her role as a wife and mother. And in the 1920s, when Franklin is diagnosed with an illness that leaves both of his legs paralyzed, Eleanor convinces him to stay in politics. She begins to make appearances on his behalf, and during these appearances, she advocates for labor unions as she's recently begun working with the Women's Trade Union League, and she also campaigns for Democratic candidates. Through this romantic and sexual separation from Franklin and engaging more increasingly in politics, this is where Eleanor really begins to find herself. In 1922, Eleanor finds herself exploring New York City's Greenwich Village, engaging with feminist activists in the area. She finds a sort of second chosen family, which is an escape from the pressurized biological family she has, in lesbian political activists. There are two in particular, Nancy Nan Cook and Marion Dickerman, who are romantic partners, and they become incredibly close and important to Eleanor as they work together. And while much of Eleanor's relationship with Nan and Marion is speculation, it is known that the trio is like completely devoted to each other. They all spend mass amounts of time together at Eleanor's private cottage called Val Kill in Hyde Park, New York, which she named, and it roughly translates to Waterfall Stream. 
And this threesome, while engaged in New York's political scene together, also share the responsibilities of raising Eleanor's children. Oh, we love it. Yeah, so they're, it's like community mutual aid, right? They're like right. helping with the children's life. They become really important to the family. Like they're always around. The children love these two women. Like mm-hmm. they just become this like really important part of the family. The three women eventually all but essentially move into Val Kill Cottage together, despite Eleanor's family home not being far away. Franklin jokingly nicknamed this cottage the Love Nest and the Honeymoon Cottage, and Eleanor Roosevelt was like the blueprint for the cottage core aesthetic. Love that. Thank you, Eleanor. Both the linens and the silver in the cottage were monogrammed with the three women's initials EMN. And I know their their relationship is like mainly speculation, but like I don't know any platonic friends that like monogram like shared personal belongings together or like roommates. You know what I mean? Like if you were to have a roommate, like I wouldn't like monogram our initials yeah. onto something well, like, unless we were like something more. Yeah, like monogramming is a little not not my taste but if it right. was if it was i probably like i we all had roommates in college like i wouldn't be like right. hey let's go get some monogram dish towels together right like there's it's one step past friendship yeah in 1927, Eleanor, Nan, and Marion buy the Todd Hunter School for Girls, a finishing school in New York, which also offers young women college prep classes. And together, the three women continue Mary Suvestra's legacy, educating girls on current topics and events, independent thought, and social engagement. During that same year, the trio also establishes Valkill Industries, which is a small factory to provide supplemental income for local farming families who would make furniture, pewter, and homespun cloth using traditional craft methods. Eleanor was also friends with another lesbian couple, Esther Lapp and Elizabeth Fisher-Reed, and her close friendships with these two lesbian couples cause historians to conclude that Eleanor, quote-unquote, understood lesbianism and was a great ally. And it's like, or she was just queer. Like, why did, why, if there are like five women hanging out together and four of them are (laughs) in relationships with other women, why would the fifth one- Right. Why would the fifth one not be at least like in the same realm as them? I also think you could probably at this point count on your hand the number of people who like understood queerness really well and were remarkable allies. Like we're talking like the early 1900s. We're not like seeing allies like loud and proud out in the streets here. So no, they didn't have GSAs in school. Right. And so I feel like, like you said, maybe this was more of a sign of something else rather than just like a really great supportive right. friend who like are is living with her her like lesbian, her lesbian friends. friends right, yeah. right. <laughs> in the early 1930s as fdr is running for president eleanor is traveling around the country making appearances and being active in her own political career a journalist by the name of Lorena Hickok, the first woman to get a front page byline in the New York Times, is assigned to profile and write coverage on Eleanor during the last few months of Franklin's 1932 campaign trail. Eleanor and Lorena, who is nicknamed Hick, spend a lot of time together on this campaign trail and grow considerably close. Hick, also planning on writing a biography on the future First Lady, receives 10 to 15 page letters daily from Eleanor and During this process, the two fall madly in love. In these letters, kind of like Rose's love letters. We love love letters. More love letters, always. (laughs) Eleanor writes, I want to put my arms around you and kiss you at the corner of your mouth. And I can't kiss you, so I kiss your picture. Good morning and good night. And at Franklin's inauguration in 1933, Eleanor wears a sapphire ring Lorena gave to her. Even after Eleanor becomes the first lady, which, by the way, she absolutely hates being, Hick kind of convinces her to hold regular press conferences just for women and also write a daily newspaper column. And with the advice and help of Hick, Eleanor does both, much to the general public's disapproval. After becoming so close to Eleanor, Hick resigns from the Associated Press, feeling like she could no longer report objectively, and Hick, who was known by the White House press corps at the time to be a lesbian, had her own room to sleep in next to Eleanor's in the White House when she visited. Mm. Kind of like Marie Antoinette. Right. Another version of events goes that Hick was actually forced to leave her AP post since her close relations with Eleanor damaged her credibility as a White House correspondent. All in all, 
The director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, despises Eleanor's liberalism, in particular her stance on civil rights, and so Hoover maintains this large file on Eleanor, which includes compromising evidence of Eleanor and Hicks' relationship, with which Hoover intends to blackmail Eleanor as a lesbian and a communist. Sweet. We love civil rights, right? We love civil (laughs) rights. (laughs) But the more that Eleanor is pushed into the public eye and engaged in more politics, the romantic relationship between the two women wanes, and they become less prominent in each other's lives. But like they did throughout their entire relationship, Eleanor and Hick stay in touch through writing letters, which they do until Eleanor's death in 1962 at the age of 78. Over the course of their relationship, from the day they met until the day Eleanor died, the two women exchanged over 16,000 pages of correspondence. That's so that's like many. Handwritten. Handwritten yeah. letter. Like that's it's like over 2,000 letters. And these letters have been extensively researched and studied and have been at the center of much of Eleanor Roosevelt discussions for quite some time now. So an author and journalist by the name of Doris Kearns Goodwin writes a book about the Roosevelts in 1994, stating that, quote, whether Hick and Eleanor went beyond kisses and hugs cannot be determined with certainty, end quote, and she wins a Pulitzer Prize for this work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, Mm -hmm. the thing you say, too, about, like, it's just the the analyzing so intently of these things. Why do you care? Like, what what will it change or not change for you? And who are you to also speculate on on what word or phrase or sentence then, like, crosses the line for you into a a different type of relationship? Like, what are you looking for out of this? And and who makes you the authority on on what their relationship was? And so a playwright by the name of Terry Baum, who I'm going to talk about in a moment, is quoted with an amazing response to this saying, it's terrible. She takes a letter and quotes the beginning and the end, but leaves out the middle that has the explicitly romantic part. And she wins a Pulitzer Prize. You won a Pulitzer Prize. You're a historian. And you're trying to do this incredibly dishonest thing. You're trying to erase the reality of this lesbian relationship. And of course, this is what happens most successfully. Good for you. And that is completely true. I second that Mm -hmm. wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. And so Hicks biographer Doris Faber also argued that, quote, insinuative phrases have misled historians, end quote, meaning that the contents of their correspondence have been misconstrued by modern day readers. In 1980, Doris Faber publishes some of the letters between Eleanor and Hick, concluding that the love-struck phrasing was simply an unusually belated schoolgirl crush, warning historians not to be misled. And I just... Okay. I want to read you some of the entries from their letters to see if this seems like just something that could be like a 30 year old schoolgirl crush. That makes sense. Right. If this could be misconstrued, if there's any way that this can be misconstrued as anything other than a romantic relationship. On January 22nd, 1934, Hick writes to Eleanor, Dearest, it was a lovely weekend. I shall have it to think about for a long, long time. Each time we have together that way brings us closer, doesn't it? January 27th, 1934, Eleanor to Hick. Gee, what wouldn't I give to talk to you and hear you now, oh dear one? It is all the little things, tones in your voice, the feel of your hair, gestures. These are the things I think about and long for. And April 19th, 1934, Hick to Eleanor. Oh, damn it. I wish I could be there when you feel as you did on Sunday night and take you in my arms and hold you close. Well, I'll try to make you happy every minute while I'm there in May. Those are just you know, three. There are, there are, there's an article online, which I didn't use, but the, it, like, there's like over 24, like, gayest moments from their right. letters. Like, these are just three of them. There are so many instances that are explicitly them talking about how they want to be together and be in each other's arms and how much they love, like, the small things about, like, I, Rachel, I love you. I would never write the, about, <laughs> no. like, those things about you in a letter to you. And that's, I actually appreciate that because I think it would make me uncomfortable. Because, you know, like, I, again, I am not the authority on contextualizing people's interactions. Like, I'm not going to say this is how, I, I also don't know the time, but would I say those things to a friend? No. If a friend said those right. things to me, I'd be like, thank you. When <laughs> a nice compliment do you want to talk about don't, something don't say like, it again right like i i feel like that definitely and i've had this conversation about so many other things too like there are certain words actions or gestures that we just understand as being 
more than friends and this to me sounds like that again maybe people just used very romantic language at this time but I'm willing to bet that this is one of those things that universally people would agree is more than just a friendship right and so there's many more excerpts from letters kind of like that that kind of we would say proves that this is a romantic relationship which is why historian and researcher Layla J. Rupp criticizes Faber's argument, calling the entire book a case study in homophobia, arguing that Faber unintentionally offered, quote, page after page of evidence that delineates the growth and development of a love affair between two women, end quote. In 1992, Eleanor's biographer Blanche Weisen-Cook argues that the relationship was indeed romantic, and in 2011, in an essay by journalist Russell Baker reviewing a few different biographies on Eleanor, concludes that the Hickok relationship was indeed erotic, now seems beyond dispute considering what is known about the letters they have exchanged. And some of Eleanor's family members have argued if she was queer or not, a handful of them believing she was, some of them not caring if she was or wasn't, and many adamantly sure that Eleanor wasn't a queer woman. Which is like, mm, okay, like, I don't I don't know what my family members do enough to be like, they're queer or not. Right. And also, like, it's so interesting to me when we have these conversations, because a lot of them are based on recorded history through letters. And so, like, what right. proof are you looking for? Like, do, do, do you want proof that they specifically had sex? And if so, what then changes for you? Because right. you can be in a romantic, exclusively non-physical, romantic and emotional connection with someone and still be in a relationship and still be queer. Like, what what do you want? What's not clicking for you? What are you looking for Right, how much proof do you need that they were together and they were in this committed relationship? Right, and so, like, some of these relationships may be exclusively sexual, some of them may be exclusively emotional and romantic, others may be both and we just don't know. And, like, what's the difference either way? The difference, because I want to emphasize that, I mean, what's the difference, like, in a, I don't mean it to say that it's, it's important if this is being erased. That's mm-hmm. the difference. Like, so it's important to tell truthful stories and not hide them because people are afraid or homophobic and don't want to acknowledge that. But in terms of like people being personally connected to her, what's the difference if this person was or was not queer, especially right. now so many years removed after her death. Right. And after FDR dies suddenly during his fourth term as president, which four terms as a president, wild, okay, whatever. He dies suddenly during this fourth term. Okay. Eleanor remains active in politics. Incoming President Truman appoints her to the first American delegation to the United Nations, and she's the only woman in the group, and she serves on the Commission on Human Rights. She also continues her advocacy work for the working class, people of color, and women up until her death. After Eleanor passes, Hick burns many of the letters from their first year of correspondence and attempts retyping the letters to exclude any romantic details in Roosevelt's writings. There's even a one-woman play written about the women's correspondence from the point of view from Hick entitled Hick, A Love Story that recounts their blossoming relationship all through the actual letters that they wrote from each other. And the playwright and actress, Terry Baum, who I quoted before, she is the one that created this play and stars in this play, notes that the retyping of the letters is due to Hick's understanding that the letters had important information for history, but the need for Eleanor's feelings for her needed to stay under wraps, especially with the FBI watching them. So I think that's a huge indicator. Plus the fact, like, I think that that's a very upsetting, but also a huge, very insightful, and also I think caring of Hick Mm -hmm. to do. So it was more out of a need to feel like she was protecting Eleanor after death. Right. And also kind of protecting herself because then she didn't want to become a target for anything as well. I also feel like it's very reminiscent to me of the James Baldwin episode where we were talking about how his book about like queer experiences and like homophobia and racism were like not allowed to be published because right like because of homophobia because homophobia and racism and then <laughs> and then this too is like there's no evidence of them having a romantic relationship and it's like but we're not homophobic and it's like no but the evidence was removed by the people in the relationship because of you being homophobic, Y'all homophobic. <laughs> right <laughs> And unfortunately, many of the letters between Eleanor and Hick are also burned and destroyed by the Roosevelt family, hoping to keep the relationship a secret. 
but no matter how hard they tried or continue to try to hide the relationship, Hick actually willed her and Eleanor's letters to the U.S. National Archives, which were received upon her death and published 10 years after her passing. The letters became available to the public in 1978 and can be read in Hyde Park. Wow. Hick is a political genius and a woman in love. I, that's mm-hmm. all I will say. That's that's smart move. Smart move, girlfriend. Absolutely. And that is the very, you know, scraping the surface, brief story of Eleanor Roosevelt and her, what I think is pretty clear queerness. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was really interesting. And yeah, I'm glad you at least scratched the surface a little bit because I think like so much of your story, there's just been like speculation to this day, I think, and like jokes or a kind of maybe common understanding that at least for me, like Eleanor Roosevelt probably had a relationship or relationships with women. And Mm -hmm. we just intentionally never really talked about it. But it was really interesting to learn. And I love we got to bring back more love letters on this show because I love it when we read love letters. I know. It's everybody it's just like everybody has love letters and everyone's like no they were just they weren't love letters yeah like they just weren't sorry and it's like uh, can you think about the last time maybe not you because obviously we're not writing love letters but like when were you studying as a historian another subject like when was the last time fdr wrote these fucking letters to his friends his male friends he didn't because there that wasn't the right that wasn't what you did so like Right. You know that. There's, you study this. We don't even freaking study it. We've we've made it clear that we don't know these things as well as you do. And you're going to say that that right. was just like hunky-dory. That's the same thing that was happening at the time. Wrong. And and we also talk a lot about contextualizing certain conversations and topics and themes, whatever. And it's like, if historians are looking at a full picture of someone, they can't, like one of those women did when writing a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, they can't just take the beginning and ending of a quote and not and exclude the middle part that is like inherently queer and romantic. Like you have to contextualize the entire quote, the entire life, the entire like conversation, because all of these factors that are pointing to her being queer were, they were real. They existed. Like they weren't just things that people are making up to be like, Oh, we think she's queer. It's like, no, you guys are erasing her queerness. And we're just trying to be like, Hey, no, this was here. Like stop trying to make it seem like she wasn't queer because she quite literally was. Right. And it it does such a disservice and is so much of the reason why we wanted to do this because as you and I were talking about this podcast and the concept of it, a lot of it is like people will be like, these concepts, these things didn't exist before. Like all the liberals made them exist in 2007 or like whatever. And it's like, that's the agenda of erasing all these things to prove that this is like kind of outlandish progressivism just like making people turning the frogs gay as as alex jones says that like we've gone so far to kind of make all these efforts to be inclusive god forbid but it's like these things these are part of the collective human experience (laughs) like they've existed and so erasing them i think serves that purpose and also that it's okay to not know one way or another or it's okay for not Mm -hmm. people to not have explicitly identified one way or another or to have had multiple experiences with multiple different people and all of these things but it's easier for people just be like nope didn't exist friends friends you know you're cool friends moving on gal pals right yeah absolutely (laughs) and it's just so crazy though that rose and eleanor had so many connections and like their backgrounds were the same this right the similarities of love letters and their relationship Mm -hmm. and just trying to be secret and like all or not even but like the similarities too of the letters like either being purposefully destroyed or hidden or retyped because they knew exactly that this was going to be the result especially by you know surviving family members and things like that Mm -hmm. also both of their i won't say husbands it's like a almost it it just kind of went naturally because we're talking about first Mm -hmm. ladies, but the presidents that they each, I guess, served with had unique presidencies with FDR serving four terms and Grover Mm -hmm. Cleveland serving two, but the only president to not serve his two terms consecutively. So Mm. like he was a president and then he wasn't, and then he ran again and then was elected again. So he did serve two terms, but like not back to back. But also who cares about the 
Yeah, like I don't care. It's so interesting because as I was doing this research, literally not once did it cross my mind to be like, let's learn about Grover Cleveland. (laughs) Like I just did not care. Yeah, everything was like FDR's wife, Eleanor. I was like, literally, I don't care about him. Like that's not who I'm trying to learn about. Like everything is framed from his perspective. And I'm like, truly, I couldn't care less about FDR and his legs. Tell me about Eleanor. Right. She was impactful in her own way so so much yeah. and yeah. yeah she had her own life and her own legacy and like the fact that it's squashed almost under the weight of fdr and his presidency right. is like it's such a shame yeah truly well thanks for teaching me about her though i really enjoyed that learning a little bit more about her of course. and thanks for teaching me about rose yeah Thanks for tuning in to episode 9 of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about some first ladies. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even writing secret love letters to your bestie a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. And to see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreal. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye! Bye.